Wait, did you hear that? There's something out there from Marfa Public Radio. A show about the strange things that happen in everyday life. So me and my buddy Drew, we, uh, we decided to do a drive from California to Texas, where I'd already been residing here in Marfa, uh, around maybe July 2007 or 6. We, let, we finished our last days in California at his uncle's uh, lake house near Yosemite. We decided to do a straight shot and uh, basically just doing your, you know, normal, normal uh, sightseeing drive, but mostly in the back roads of the southwest to Marfa. It was pretty late when we passed through El Paso. I think it was like either midnight or 2 a.m. or something like that. Where it was getting to a point where we were getting really sleepy and really kind of like delirious. But we've done this before where we just say, you know, we got to go all the way. I mean, why waste another another morning? So we decided to go all the way through and found ourselves near uh, Valentine, Texas, which is probably 40 miles west of Marfa. And we're driving about 65 miles an hour. It's probably already like 4.35 in the morning. We were the only car on the road for like, you know, for miles and miles. We never saw a car. Never, the car didn't pass us in that time, and we never saw a car behind us. And I think we were just, you know, we were pretty tired, but we were just trying to stay awake. And it was kind of, it was a, it was a pretty clear and bright night. Looking out into the landscape, you can see nothing. It's pitch black. There's absolutely nothing out there. Not even a house light. There's just enough moonlight to see the silhouettes of the mountains to the to the south and to the north of the highway when you're driving close towards Valentine and Prada Marfa in general. Because that Prada Marfa, you'd imagine, that's like the next light you'll see. There's no houses. There's no lights anywhere. And I was mentioning to him that uh, some, somewhere maybe on that stretch of road, maybe 1980, when I was probably an infant, that there was a light that visited my parents. So this, it just occurred to me to tell the story to Drew and say, this is probably around the area where my parents were visited by a light. And it literally wasn't no more than a, no more than a minute before uh, a, a beam of light came out from behind this mountain. This is Carlos talking. He said, yeah, this is... I know that there's like a another light out there that's like a ranch or something. He's like, but this other light, there's no one out there. I don't know why there should be a light out there. Now it's hard. It's hard to just say that it just came up from behind a mountain because it's as if I'm watching. I have like a clear perspective on this whole thing. But there's nothing else to see out there. It's com- it's pitch black everywhere. I see this light come out subtly. It's just it was just so calm and and so bright. So we saw the light and it was just kind of hanging up there and it was kind of moving around a little bit in this kind of weird way. It was like, almost like jiggling or something, like back and forth really quick. And the weird thing was, we noticed that it was just kind of sitting there, but it was kind of tracing our car, meaning that it was like traveling. We were going like 65 miles an hour. It was kind of like staying with us. And then very quickly, all of a sudden, it basically traveled like half the distance from the mountain and us. And that's like in a matter of seconds. It was just very quickly, like, twice as close to us. And that's about where we kind of freaked out. And we are like, what the heck? It felt like it was tethered to the fence line and racing on a track on the fence line. is moving with us, but it was not giving, it was not, it's basically like tethered to us. And not, we were not gaining on it or losing on it. It's like we had a wing attached to us and it was staying completely consistent with us. No, no, no push or pull. I, at that point, knew it wasn't like 
like anything that I knew of. Like a wasn't because there was no physical shape. Like it when it was above the mountain, you couldn't really tell. But about half when it traveled the distance of halfway, we should have been able to see sort some sort of like physical shape, like shape of a plane or shape of a you know a helicopter or something. But there was no shape. It was just the light, and it maintained its kind of like weird, like random movement, which is that's I think added to the craziness of the thing and it was still tracking with us it was still like traveling the same speed with us but once it was with us and following us and 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 in the still position where it's like on a track with us and on track with us in a straight line it started to do a rotation and it sped and sped and sped and I, i i started losing it i started losing it i started telling drew what do i do do i slow down to where we can have a moment with this thing we can have like to finally face this because I was panicking and re-explained to my to, to my buddy this is exactly what my parents saw I remember Carlos telling me that his parents had, had a very similar experience they were driving from El Paso and they assumed this light had been following them probably for a similar amount of time into Valentine to where they were so frightened by it that they stayed in Valentine, which is probably, what, a mile stretch of, of town? And uh, they stayed parked in town in, the, in, that, in that night, that late night. Uh, maybe they said for, like, maybe a half hour or something, 45 minutes. So lo and behold, they leave town, which is just you drive another 1,000 feet, and you're out of town. And uh, maybe around the first bend of the road and straighten out again down the highway. The light is on the middle of the inter- uh, middle of the highway well it was waiting for them and it was there and then all they could do was just like they just said let's drive towards it I don't I don't know I mean we're going home <laughs> what what is this gonna <laughs> what's gonna happen what is this thing doing there and sure enough they just they just drove and kind of went with all confidence that that light will disappear it's just a light I don't know and all the light did was start to uh, approach them for a short amount of time before it just kind of sped up, shot past their windshield and over the car and away and disappeared. I don't remember him saying a word. Except, with, like I said, the hand motion of like speed up. Hand motion was just like, go. I remember I was breathing and Carlos was like saying, oh my God, like over and over again. And so I kept driving, and I think Carlos actually sped up. He was driving maybe like 75 or 80 or something. So there we are speeding, and, and we're getting a little, like, uh, panicked. So this thing is kind of getting closer to us. I think we shot past Prada, Prada Marfa, and the light started to descend down into the ground as if it was going to, like, just crash into the dirt. And then all of a sudden, we, like, flew into Valentine. And we passed a cop. And of course, we get pulled over. The funny thing is that when we pulled over and we're waiting for the cop, we were trying to find out where the light went because it kind of just, as soon as we noticed the cop was there, it disappeared. It just was gone. Uh, Drew is, is looking a little uh, speechless and a little shaky. We are both still freaking out about the light and we were like literally like breathing heavily. <laughs> it was like... It's pretty much the scariest thing I think I've ever seen in my life. And the cop pulls up, walks up to the car and says, well, even before he even says anything to me, I said, did you see that light? And he said he didn't see anything, which is odd. 
because he was kind of just sitting there. He grabs the papers, registration and stuff, and he heads. He says, I'll be right back. So Drew and I are perplexed as to, like, you know, from his angle where he was parked, he should have seen something coming towards him. So that that incident alone, that moment alone, has asked, has had us asking for years, like, was he oblivious to this whole thing? Was this only, like, existing in our, in our little, like, in our little world, in our little reality or something like that? Was it, I don't know. But then I remember my parents, this happened to my parents too. So, and this happened to them 30 years ago in the same, in the same manner. Police officer comes back and he says, uh, have a nice day while handing me the papers back. And no, no ticket. Um, And then we left and we left kind of slowly. We, as we, as we pulled out, we looked out over where it was and it wasn't there and we never saw it again. It was just gone. Um, to be honest, I think it was kind of hard for both of us to sleep that night just because it was such a weird experience. I think maybe it was maybe uh, months later where I was... No, 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 it was a week later. Back at work at the at the hotel, serving some folks, and I remembered that their last name was the name of the ranch where that light had uh, been experienced. And I remember telling them, hey, I have to tell you about this whole story. And their only response to it was, was I drinking? And kind of brushed it off, kind of thinking like, well, you know, maybe, you know, again, maybe they know something they don't want to admit to it. Or maybe they just, it's a, a thing, it's like a very, really rare occurrence. You've reached the office of Dr. Lynn McNeil, folklorist at Utah State University. I can't come to the phone right now, but if you leave... James? Yeah. Is this, this is Lynn McNeil. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. So after listening to the story, you know, especially with uh, Carlos and him saying that his parents saw this light, is there some sort of correlation between Carlos being influenced by his parents and with him being told that story as he was a kid, is he more inclined to believe in supernatural activity? Yes, definitely. I think, you know, there's a wide range of possibilities when it comes to the the source of supernatural belief. And one of them definitely is the culture that you grow up in. And that could be the culture on a national scale, the culture on a community scale, and the culture on a family scale. The the people around us shape our worldviews, and our worldviews tell us what is within the reasonable bounds of expectation. And so it's also kind of strange because Drew also saw this light, and they both had very similar descriptions of the light. But he's actually from California. But the one thing about Drew is before coming to Marfa, he read up and heard about the Marfa lights and was actually excited to see them. So with his expectation and his knowledge of Marfa Lights existing, does that kind of affect the way he saw this light or made it easier for him to believe that this was a supernatural thing? You know, it's interesting to consider the way that not just expectation, but but desire and hope and excitement affect these sorts of things. But it's important to balance that out with the reality that people 
who believe in supernatural occurrences are often being surprisingly rational. And I think we hear that from both Carlos and Drew. These aren't guys who are ready to read into the slightest stimulus that, oh, that's something supernatural is happening. They're really thinking about what's taking place here. And that's something that's surprisingly common when you start looking into people's supernatural narratives and supernatural experiences. And I say it's surprising because from the outside, for someone who doesn't share that belief system or hasn't had that experience, it's really easy to write people off as being irrational. And being aware of tradition is going to give you a name for something. And we see that a lot with a lot of supernatural experiences. If you grow up in a place where you don't have a name for something, you're simply less likely to speak about it and and therefore less likely to use that concept in your interpretation of the the reality around you. You know, the town of Marfa is only 2,000 people, but it seems as though every building is either haunted or there's a high concentration of people who believe in supernatural activity. The fact that the population is so small and that we're so far away, 20 miles away from the nearest town, does that have a factor in playing in uh, people believing in supernatural activity? It absolutely does. You know, folklorists have two main theories about the source of supernatural belief. And one of them is that at the root of supernatural belief is experience. And if we go with the experiential theory, we would say strange stuff happens in Marfa, Texas. That would be our conclusion, is that the reason that people in Marfa, Texas have such a high reporting of supernatural activity is because weird stuff happens there. The other source of supernatural belief is culture. As we were saying, community, family, you know, the expectations of people around you. And in that sense, one of the things that we see in a small town is not necessarily that small town people are more susceptible to supernatural belief, but that information moves differently through a small town than it does through a giant urban population. And when you add into that the physical isolation of a place, that cuts down a huge number of explanations for mysterious occurrences, right? In a large city, the noise pollution and light pollution are so great that it would be hard to pick out an unidentified object in the sky from all the other objects that are currently in the sky or an unexplained noise from all the other noises going on. When you're in an isolated place geographically, you immediately cut out a number of options for what those lights might be or or what that noise might be. So you mentioned that Carlos and Drew are both very rational people and they they had very similar experiences with this light, very similar descriptions. So is it highly possible that they actually did see a Marfa light or just this unexplainable supernatural light? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's something that we need to allow for more when we talk to people about the supernatural. And it's not the same thing, just to clarify, as saying you are correct or your interpretation of what you saw is correct. Because that's a step that's difficult for a lot of people, especially people not inclined to believe in the supernatural, especially the supernatural you didn't grow up with. You know, a lot of us say, oh, yeah, no, ghost lights, impossible. But guardian angels, yeah, totally possible, because that fits in with my belief system. And, and so when we talk about the supernatural, we often use that word to label beliefs we don't have. But to be able to say, 
I think they saw something. These, you know, these are two sober, intelligent, observant people, both of them reporting the same thing and doing what human beings do, which is try to make sense of it. And they're making sense of it with the tools at their disposal. And those tools are both scientific and cultural and belief-based. And, and all of this, and they're, they're putting those different spins all together to say what was happening here. And it may be that the best explanation from the resources available to them is we saw the Marfa lights. It's like this isolated event in my mind that just kind of happened out of nowhere and it's connected to this weird place, Marfa, that I've been to a few times and helped me to become aware or to, to pay more attention to the fact that there are things outside of what we normally experience that are going on. I think in that way, I can say that it kind of made me more uh, inquisitive in spiritual things or in like non-explainable supernatural things, I guess is a good word to use. I still to this day try to figure out what is it particular about me where I've been able to see something like this because I've also asked people kind of not so serious if they've ever experienced something like that and they say no. So it has to make me feel like I have something to figure out or to trust in, maybe to believe in. And I, I'm just open for that. That's why I, I, I love the landscape out here. I, I believe that there's some strange un, unseen things by the, the majority of humanity. That's why it's also been very more natural for me to sit here and, uh, and enjoy living here because it just feels like it's my home. <laughs> There's Something Out There is produced by James Kim with sound design and score by Zane Brzezinski. Additional help from Jefferson Yen, Sally Bouvet, Sarah Vasquez, Rebecca McGivney and Sam Winks. The executive producer is Tom Michael. You're listening to Marfa Public Radio.